from deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Second down four at the mean green six from the right hash. Cronkright in a one back set. Del Rio under center. Hands it off to Cronkright. Trying to run off to the left to the five to the four to three, two, one. Touchdown. On a six yard run to the left side for Jordan Cronkright. And the Gators lead 11 to nothing. Third down and 18. For the Gators, their own 48-yard line. Austin Appleby takes the snap, hands it off to Thompson. Thompson 45, Thompson 40, Thompson 35, cuts to the left, he's to the 30, he's to the 25, he's to the 20, and finally they tackle him at the 16-yard line. How oh my 31-and-a-half-yard run, Mark Thompson! Austin Appleby barks them out, takes the snap, gives it off to Thompson, trying to run to the right, 20, 15, 10, 5, he's in! Touchdown, Thompson made! On a beautiful run, it is 25 to nothing. That was beautiful. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. After improving to 3-0 following a 32-0 shutout of North Texas, the Gators are ready for possibly their biggest test of the season. The time for talk has come to an end because Florida, Tennessee is finally here. To get you set for the marquee tilt on Rocky Top, We'll learn about Florida's breakout star linebacker, Alex Anzalone, hear from the newly arrived DB coach, Torian Gray, and get a primer on the history behind this rivalry and what to make of this year's matchup with the voice of the Gators, Mick Hubert. But first, you may not know him by name, but you would certainly know him by his defining characteristic, his hair. Alex Anzalone didn't always have the flowing blonde locks that now serve as his signature, and he almost wasn't even a Gator. We sat down with the redshirt junior to learn more about the man behind the mane. But first, we needed to put the years-long debate over his name to rest. Is it Anzalone? Is it Anzalone? Or is there some other way that someone else pronounces it? Anzalone. Anzalone. If you want to say it a little Italian, you can. A little (laughs) A at the end. But you're you're used to that, though. People have been messing that up for a long time. Yeah. Okay. Just want to make make sure. Uh, Let's talk about first where you're at right now with this defense. Top-rated unit in the country, just stifling the first three weeks of the season. What do you think has made this particular defense so special to this point? Um, I think the biggest thing is that we've played as one, really, all through three games. We've we play together, we celebrate together, do everything together, we do our assignments together, you know, and I think that's just the biggest thing that separates us from previous years and even other teams in the nation. Given that, what has been different about this group? Why do you think that's so much more connected? I think that a lot of us are really close, you know, I don't think there's, if you go in the defensive meeting room, I don't think there's, for me personally, I don't think there's one guy in the room that I don't have a relationship with, so I think the stuff off the field that we do, correlates his stuff on the field and I know I have my the guy JD's back I have everyone else's back and they have my back so I think that's the biggest thing you've been here for quite a while now but for a long time it didn't look like you're going to come to Florida Mm -hmm. so I read a lot about your very strange long recruiting trail uh take us through that and that that whole process you know the whole thing really if you read the stuff online and stuff like that 
and you know who I am personally, it doesn't really match up. It's kind of just the way it worked out was kind of weird. After my junior year, I got a bunch of offers and like 50 in one month. I just blew up or whatever. And it was kind of overwhelming for my area. There hasn't been anyone like that from my school or anything like that. So it was kind of new for everyone. And, you know, I, I was committed to Ohio State and just think kind of rushed into it and just decided to open up things from there. And then I was committed to Notre Dame for a while. And um, I thought that was a school I was going to go to. And I know I grew up a Florida fan. I think my heart was always here. And last minute, uh, some things worked out where I had to make a decision. And I think Florida was the best fit for me. And it's worked out even through injuries and stuff like that. It's worked out. And uh, it's just been a great place to be. Now, on, on the Notre Dame side, you sort of got wrapped up in the Manti Teo's yeah. imaginary <laughs> girlfriend situation. Yeah. Ex- explain that. So um, I guess I posted a picture on Instagram back when Instagram kind of <laughs> first started blowing up. And I posted a picture with Manti and uh, I guess his girlfriend at the time. Air quotes. <laughs> yeah. Use the air quotes. <laughs> uh, comment on the picture like blessings or whatever. And I was like, oh, wow, his girlfriend. He talked about his talked to me about his girlfriend or whatever that's kind of cool <laughs> and then looking back on it it was a little weird a little strange so uh, there's a lot of goofy stuff that goes on in recruiting uh-huh. and that was obviously part of yeah. it yeah so what helped you cut through all of that clutter how did you end up deciding that, that Florida was for you know you? I think I think the biggest thing was that I had a really supportive family and they helped me make the sit help me make the best decision for me and um they they gave me the opportunity to visit as many places as I needed to to make the decision and um, honestly, it's just been a really great decision, and I, I love Florida. I grew up a Florida fan. I have family ties down here, and um, I think it was where my heart was the whole time. I just didn't really know know it at the time, and I was kind of distracted by a lot of other things, a lot of other schools, and uh, ultimately I made the right decision. So you talk about the family ties. One of those is your dad graduated from Florida. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people during the recruiting process said, oh, he's pushing him to Florida. He uh-huh. wants to go to Florida. And yet you said that coming to Florida was really a big risk, a, mm-hmm. a big swing. Yeah. Why did you feel that way? I mean, obviously it's long distance. I'm from Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't really know what to expect. I kind of, just because how late I decided to come here, I didn't really know a lot of the guys in the recruiting class. And um, I mean, like things like that kind of just added up. Well, also, I know physically you wanted to challenge yourself to see if you can compete in the SEC because mm-hmm. you weren't always as big as you are now. Yeah. You had to really work to get up Yeah, to I mean, yeah. So from where I was in high school, I never really knew I could play in the SEC. I, I have a funny story. So when I was in, I don't know how old, like junior high, maybe seventh, eighth grade, mm-hmm. and we were watching, me and my dad were watching Florida on TV, and I was like, Dad, there's literally, like in my wildest dreams, there's no way I could play for <laughs> Florida. <laughs> And he's just like, don't doubt yourself. You never know, whatever. And, I mean, that's just one life lesson I've learned. You can't Mm -hmm. doubt yourself, and you never know what's going to happen. So that's just a funny story that I haven't really said to people, but it's just something funny to me. (laughs) So looking back at your path through high school and all that, you took the SAT when you were a sophomore Mm -hmm. because you were considering going to an Ivy League school. You finished high school with a 4.8 GPA, and you've already (laughs) graduated from college. Now you're working on a master's, Uh and yet you – Consider yourself the black sheep of your family. <laughs> Explain that to people who feel less accomplished after that list I just read. So my dad's a pediatrician. Mm-hmm. Um, he graduated from UF in med school. Uh, my brother just graduated med school in wow. f- out of Philly, and he's in residency now. And my other brother's in med school <laughs> in t- at Temple. So um, I guess that that's why I consider myself the black sheep. <laughs> so, But you're just trying to give them another patient to work on, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By getting, 
getting hurt out on the field. And, and you've had a lot of injuries. That's been a big part of your mm-hmm. story. Uh, is it ironic in some way that you have so many doctors in the family and, and your college story to this point has been so much about getting hurt? Um, I mean, not really. It's just something that happens in football, you know. Not really a big deal to me. I mean, it's just a little adversity. Mm-hmm. How did you get through that adversity? Because it's, it's more than a little. It's just mm-hmm. multiple years you've been here that, that have been marred by injuries and, and set you back. How have you powered through that? Yeah, so my freshman year, I think, when I first got hurt, that was kind of like the biggest shock to me because I've I've never been hurt in high school, whatever. I've never been hurt. So that was kind of a big shock to me. And then rehabbing through that, it was kind of not, not easy, but it was just like, some, oh, I'll be back for camp. I'll be mm-hmm. all right and be ready for my freshman year play my freshman year, come Georgia Southern, get hurt again. I'm just like, what the heck? Like, what happened? And it was a little adversity for me. And then play my sophomore year, I'm good. Mm-hmm. Play the whole year. Make, started coming along the the last couple games of the year. and was going into my junior year, and we all knew how, how I was com- coming into my junior year. And to get hurt like that in the second game, was that was probably the hardest for me just because I thought I was okay and um, I thought my shoulder was all right and everything like that. And to see something like that happen was – really disappointing and luckily it turned out not to be that big of a deal and um I mean it's worked out right now looking back on it I learned a lot from it so just kind of one of those life lessons you learn going mm-hmm. along it's how to deal with adversity how to learn from some of the bad things that happen in your life you had said that sitting at home injured watching the Tennessee game last year was probably mm-hmm. the, the low point for you yeah is it ironic that now you're preparing <laughs> to go lead this defense to probably the biggest game that you've played at Tennessee yeah I think um it's pretty ironic. <laughs> uh, I remember sitting on my couch at home, and the first half I was all upset cause, just because how we were playing. And, mm-hmm. you know, I could have been out there helping them or could have been out there playing hard with my, my, with my boys. And, um, I mean, it's a big game this year. It's hyped up and just ready to go. I mean, I don't really think about last year that much anymore just because I've kind of moved on from it. Mm-hmm. And just ready to go. I'm really excited. Your dad has said about you – don't BS him and don't expect him to be mediocre. Uh-huh. How did that become your, your life credo in, in some way? You know, I guess that's just my personality. I don't like when people, I don't know, come across as a little shady to me. And, um, you know, the coaches know that here. I mean, it's not, it's not like I'm, it's out there. They, just, they can tell from my personality. I can see through things and stuff like that just because I'm aware of what's going on. And, um, yeah, being mediocre is one of the biggest, one of my biggest pet peeves, you know. Just people that are lazy, and if I'm ever lazy, I'm like, what am I doing? What am I? Why am I? Why am I up today? Why it's ten o'clock? Why? Why am I? Why am I already ate breakfast? Why haven't I already worked out or something like that? You've said that you don't want football to define you. Mm-hmm. What in your mind defines you then, if it, if it's not football? You know, I think it's a part of my life that's obviously really big. I do it every day, you know, but it doesn't define who I am as a person. I know life's bigger than football and just a game that we play for fun I mean obviously at the next level it's for money and mm-hmm. for at school like UF you know it generates a lot of money and you know for us as players it's something we should be doing for fun and I think a lot of people get lost with that idea and kind of take it not too serious I mean obviously I take it serious but you know what I mean mm-hmm. people sure get lost it's well, not, not life or death yeah it's not li- yeah it's not life or death so you know it just you play with, I play with passion and have fun with it, but it doesn't define who I am. I'm obviously care about school, care about my social life, and uh, I know a lot of the relationships are going to go far beyond football that I've developed at UF and with my teammates. Speaking of teammates, Coach Mack has talked about you as being just the consummate teammate, especially with what he saw last year when you were hurt. 
what did you focus on when you couldn't be on the field to try and be as supportive as possible? You know, I never missed a meeting or workout or practice or anything like that. And, I mean, that's just kind of what I wanted to do when I went down, just be there for my teammates. If I could help at all, you know, I kind of felt like I couldn't, I couldn't do anything, so I might as well mm-hmm. try to help on the field in the film room or something like that, try to get the young guys coming along or anything I can do to help the team, you know. And I think just doing that has helped me personally in the long run. Teammates and coaches have said that there's this weird bond between you and Jared Davis that you guys can almost <laughs> sense what the other is doing sometimes, especially pre-snap and things like that. How do you describe the, the connection that, that you and Jared have? Um, I think it goes to how close we are off the field, too. Um, we're best friends pretty much, and um, I think we know, like like a lot of people say, we kind of know what we're doing. We know each other so well that we watch each other on film and watch film together that we know what kind of our tendencies and stuff like that, and we see a lot of the same stuff. We're mm-hmm. eye-to-eye on a lot of stuff, especially on the field, and um, I think that definitely helps us, you know, and playing and everything like that. So I think that's definitely something that benefits the team. If anyone's listening right now and still isn't exactly sure who you are, they'll know after this question. Let's talk about the hair. <laughs> when, when did this hair become a thing, and – how do you how do you explain the the life that the hair has, uh-huh. has taken on? So I think it was my sophomore year, Naron Ball. Mm-hmm. A lot of people know him. He plays for the Raiders now. Mm-hmm. Um, he he tried to convince me and convince me to grow my hair out. So I was like, okay. So my sophomore year, I got a buzz cut before camp, <laughs> and me and Jordan Share were like, all right, let's grow our hair out. <laughs> and um, I'm assuming you won because yeah. I've seen Jordan Share. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he cut his hair. His hair got a little curly. <laughs> his mom made us made him cut his, and uh, I guess mine just turned out well. I guess, and I mean, it's something fun. It's nothing to get attention or anything. It's just something f- fun that I do. I don't know. It's it's worked out. Is, is there a limit? Like, is there a point at which you're going to say, yeah, "That's it. I'm I'm cutting it." Yeah. Out. Until when people come from behind and start at seeing if I'm a girl or a boy, <laughs> that's probably my limit. <laughs> I'm getting close to it. You're getting close now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know you also you've been called a lot of names, fun uh-huh. names by teammates, by coaches. Well, uh-huh. Which ones can you remember off the top of your head that, that um, you've been called before? So it started off. I got sunshine a lot just because okay. of the blonde, long blonde hair, that's and easy. then kind of uh, grew out of that to Thor. Um, that's superhero comp- compliment, I guess. Um, Thor's pretty, you just need to walk around with a hammer now. Yeah, right. <laughs> Gotta pull it off. Really sell it. Yeah. And then uh, I'm trying to think of some other ones. Sunshine and Thor are the most popular. Which one's your favorite? I mean, uh, Thor just because it's a compliment, I guess. Superhero. Are there any that you've heard and you've said, don't, Su- don't sunshine, call me that? Sunshine. Don't, don't, don't call me Sunshine. That's, yeah. that's the line? Yeah. Uh, the line is Sunshine. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I want to bring this back to the, the Tennessee game before we go here. and. Mm-hmm. There's been so much hype about this game, especially yeah. from the Tennessee side, all the way through the off season, through the first few weeks of the year. What do you and your teammates make of all of that? What impact does the hype, the streak, the trash talk, what does mm-hmm. all of that do? You know, I mean, at the same time, all that's going on, you just got to think about what we're doing, who we're playing. You know, you got to focus on no matter what someone says on Twitter or what someone says on to the media after the practice, at the end of the day, if we're playing cover three and it's third and ten you gotta know exactly where you are you know what I mean it's mm-hmm. at the end of the day the hype wears off at the, at the, after the first play all the excitement and everything kind of wears off all the jitters and all that so I think people forget that a little bit and for the fans obviously there's a lot of trash talking stuff there's always going to be that Florida Tennessee but as far as for the players go it kind of wears off and at the end of the day, you got to know your responsibility. There's so much thinking that goes on on the field that mm-hmm. you you, can't, you don't even have time to think about that. So 
Um, I mean, it's fun for some people. Other than that, just kind of just what happens in football. What's the early part of that game like? Not necessarily in Neyland, but just in any big game environment on the road with all the noise, the buildup. Mm-hmm. How do you handle all of that? Because it usually leads to some momentum yeah. on the field, at least early on. You get yeah. that, that surge. Yeah, so obviously you're going to play with a lot of energy the first couple of plays just because, you know, if you watch me and JD, we're, we're playing – First play of the game, we're playing run. <laughs> it's, you, it's pretty obvious on film because we know it's coming and we're going to hit our gap. And I think just playing with that little bit of energy, just kind of get some momentum, gets a pregame jitters out of you, and after the first hit, it's, it's all gone. So I think a lot of people forget that. When you look at Tennessee, the matchup and what you've been working on, what are the keys? What do you have to do well to, to beat Tennessee? You know, you, you obviously got to think about their playmakers offensively. Um, Jalen Hurd, Josh Dobbs, Alvin Kamara, those are three guys that are the best in the league, and you have to stop them if you want to stop Tennessee, and that's a really tough task, and uh, we're we're up for it, and we're excited to go. How challenging is it bringing down a Josh Dobbs, a Jalen Hurd? I know you weren't there last yeah. year, but it, it was a struggle. Coach uh-huh, Max said yeah. you couldn't get those guys down last year. I think How do you do that this yeah, year? Yeah, I think a lot of the time we were kind of almost playing too hard. We were going for more of the big hits rather than the sure tackles, and uh, I mean, it showed up on film after the fir- the first half. We were trying to not necessarily dive at their legs and just trying to make the big hits, but um, we just weren't playing with proper technique and things like that. So second half, we made the adjustment, and uh, even after that game, we worked on our tackling and stuff like that. So that's the biggest thing: just make the sure tackle. Don't go for the big hit, and uh, we'll be in the right we'll be in the right spot and right fit. And our defense is fast enough to really contain those guys. So. I mean, it should be a it should be a good challenge for us and see where we're at, and I'm just excited. Do you know the words to Rocky Top? Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> Hopefully, you don't have to you don't hear it too much this weekend. Yeah, <laughs> Alex, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, thank you. If you ask most people inside a football program what the keys to success are, many will point to continuity among the coaching staff being of the utmost importance. It's something that Florida lacked in the years following the Tebow era, but Jim McElwain has stopped the constantly revolving door by maintaining almost all of his staff over his tenure so far. But there's always room for some change, and that's represented by Torian Gray. The Virginia Tech alum and longtime assistant of the Hokies joined the Gators staff this year, and the new dean of DBU told Jeff Cardozo it's good to be back in his home state. It's awesome, um, Jeff, to be back, uh, to be a Florida Gator, you know, being a native Floridian and being able to come home, you could say, and, and coach the defensive backs at a, at a major university in the SEC conference. It's just been an awesome feeling. It was probably a tough decision to, to leave where you were and you get comfortable there and obviously a, a good history there. But what, what enticed you about wanting to get down here to Florida? Well, it's the SEC. It's Florida. It's home. You know the quality of players that Florida can attract and has. Um, all those things were, were very intriguing, and that was that was um, a lot to lot to think about. But um, you know, it was something I, I felt I wanted to try. It, it seems like it's been pretty easy. Coach Mack just walk in when he meets you, and he throws a piece of paper down and says Tabor and Wilson on it. And <laughs> oh shoot, I'll, I'll take that job, no problem. But to to know the the talent that you had coming in, that had to be pretty neat. Yeah, it was it was when he when I'm talking to Coach Mack on the phone and he was telling me he's got this guy, you got this guy, you got Marcus May, this guy. And I'm like, there's no way he, all these guys are of this caliber. Well, you know, but I I didn't know him, but, you know, it was kind of like, really? You know, so I'm like, that would be pretty cool. So it was 
it was pretty cool to walk into the situation. And obviously you worked with them in the, in the summer and, and getting ready for, for now the season. So you've got a three-game sample size. Have they lived up to everything you thought they would be? Definitely. Definitely. The guys are all playing at an extremely high level, and there's still room for improvement. So that's the neat thing. And those guys really want to get better. They really want to be the best. So, you know, it's it's be cool going forward, seeing if we can continue to maintain the level of play. It seems like confidence is no issue with this group either. So you get three home games inside the friendly confines of the swamp, but it's going to be loud. me, 100,000 people yelling and screaming at these guys. Uh, but I think you feel that they can handle it, right? Yeah, it's going to be a, a much different atmosphere than what we've experienced. We've been here in the swamp. But to go on the road, play in this atmosphere. Now, can we take our game to the road that's going to be intriguing to see now I know but I feel the guys are up to challenge and you've certainly played in, in a lot of venues and coached a lot of venues that are really loud what, what do you do and, and what's important for, for those guys is it really about communicating with the rest of the bunch yeah definitely but the the biggest thing is when you play in these venues our details and our communications and all our little details have to be that much more focused and precise so you really just try to dial the guys in hey you got all this stuff going around you but that's when we really got to be honed in more on our task at hand and playing with each other and, and those type of things inside the swamp you, you look down last week and the music's blaring on third downs you guys have been really good on that down obviously but the you know, tabers dancing around and, and quincy and, and the rest of those guys they, they look like they're having fun is that is that what it is out there yeah definitely you know that's kind of the environment that's been created that's what those guys enjoy doing and like i said if we're if we're focused as long as we're focused and locked in and let those guys have fun and they 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 seem to play well that way and, and can they feed off of each other when one one guy gets a pick, does the other one now want to get one even more? You know, Jeff, that's been the fun thing about watching our guys through these first three games when anybody makes a play or one guy makes a play, the closest guy near him is just as excited. And to see that emotion on film and to see it continue to spill over has just been a, been been really great. What's the challenge with Dobbs? He's a guy that you know maybe doesn't throw it the greatest, but at any time he can and break away from those front seven. And then how do you teach your guys to go try to get him? Right. The biggest challenge is... He can make some throws. He's make throw some deep balls and, and and can hurt you that way. But if things break down, you're trying to cover guys and you know, he may be running running downfield through the secondary or he may extend the play and we gotta continue to cover our guys and make sure he don't get a play outside the pocket where he can throw it downfield. So he he presents problems in, in that respect. And to counter that, it's probably really neat watching from your perspective how good the, those front seven are and, and how easily those guys are getting to the quarterbacks because it certainly helps your position. Oh, definitely, definitely. The way our front seven is playing to play secondary on the back end makes makes our jobs easier, a lot easier. So um, that's been great, and we're going to need that out of those guys to be able to continue that because it's going to be a rough environment. Is there anything different that you've worked on this week that, that you try to change from what you've seen in the first three weeks as you watch film? Not really. Our biggest thing of defeating Tennessee is you got to stop their their guys. Dobbs, you got to stop um, number one, six. We got to tackle, and we can't you know give up the explosive play in the pass game. So those are the big things. There's nothing different that we're doing except just stop the run and don't give up the big play in the pass game. You certainly got a, a great group of starters, and, and we all know what, what they're trying to do. What about some of the other guys, uh, some of the some of the younger guys that maybe Florida fans don't know about? How are they progressing? Well, our younger guys need work on the perimeter guys. Um, our cornerback spot, you got Joseph Putu, Chris Williamson, who could, needs to continue to progress because at some point we're going to need those guys to give us depth. So those guys got to continue to grow at their positions. We got Chauncey Gardner, who needs to continue to grow at the nickel position to give us some depth. Um, you know, they're all young guys are new to the 
college playing experience, so we got to get those guys better. At the safety spot, you know, we've got three really good safeties, I feel, and then Jawan Taylor's a freshman who's coming along and getting better. These guys are uh, talking a lot of smack, too, which, which is always fun. Did you used to do that back in the day? No, I just kind of played ball, but I guess, you know, whatever, whatever suits you. The Gators ride into Knoxville having won a stunning 11 straight games against the Vols. And if they're going to make it a dozen, it may be their most impressive act yet. Florida is a clear underdog and will be starting Austin Appleby at quarterback in place of the injured Luke Del Rio. But as we discussed with Mick Hubert, it's not the first time in recent history that a backup quarterback has been thrust into a tough situation. It's interesting, you're putting a guy out there that hasn't played a lot this year, but on the other hand, he is a graduate student who's played a lot in the Big Ten in his four years at Purdue. I think he had an opportunity to start 11 games. From that standpoint, you know, he's an older guy that, 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 like I say, has some experience under his belt. I just remember last year, you know, when Real Greer was suspended, the very next game, we had to go on the road again without our regular starting quarterback. It was Treon Harris who had to go play LSU, and he played pretty well in that game. The Gators lost by just seven at Baton Rouge, again, with the, not your regular quarterback. So, again, when we have a transition now this year, uh, it's not a nice little home game to deal with. It's a road game, uh, and uh, I think he'll play very well. I think he obviously competed neck and neck. Uh, with Del Rio in, in, this, in the camp, and uh, they were very close. And I think he's got a pretty good understanding of the offense. I think he's also a student of the game that has studied this. It's always nice to have a quarterback that goes out and can make plays. And yet, I think with Jim McElwain's offense, uh, that's gravy. He just wants a guy, you know, sometimes the word manage the game gets a negative connotation. Mm-hmm. But he wants a guy that goes out there and doesn't try and do too much. Don't lose the game. This is a Gator football team that's got a great defense, got vastly improved special teams, got a kicker, got good running backs. These are formulas for winning games. You know, play defense, run the football, be solid in the kicking game. So you don't want your quarterback throwing it to the other team. If he just handles that situation and and makes the plays that he sees in front of him and not try and throw the ball through narrow windows and just things like that, I think he'll be just fine. And you mentioned having the great defense behind him and through the first three games, just ridiculous eye-popping numbers statistically. What has stood out to you about this Gator defense so far? You know, I, I think it's been a combination of things by a lot of different players. I think a lot of different guys have gotten in and contributed, and yet I think we we haven't seen uh, uh, Caleb Brantley had the sack the other day. We were waiting maybe for him to make a big play, and he made one early in the game. So I don't know that we've seen yet the best of Caleb Brantley, and that's not a knock on him at all because he's a great player. But I think he's got a, a bigger ceiling this year. I think he can do more. I think Joy Ivey can do more. Brian Cox has been very valuable. Brian Cox had a great game against Tennessee last year. He was disruptive. He had a tackle for loss, a fumble recovery. The year before that, in 2014, he had three sacks against Tennessee in Knoxville. So he's been disruptive against Tennessee, so he, you want to see him step up. So I think that some of our veteran guys uh, on the D-line can play a little bit better, and yet here's Florida leading the nation in sacks. You know, they had nine in the first two games, and they go out and get seven last week against the North Texas, so the, leading the nation in sacks and 
and leading the nation in the fewest yards given up and uh, points allowed. So this has been a very, very good defense, and yet we saw in the first week, you know, they were susceptible to a couple of uh, big passes because they were playing a little shorthanded. Mm-hmm. The secondary with no tease Tabor. You see when he came back, what, he, what he's capable of doing. Quincy Wilson had a pick the, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Marcel Harris got his first interception last week. So that's what I'm talking about. The, there's a lot of guys contributing, and we haven't even mentioned the two leading tacklers, which is what you would hope a football team would be made of, that's your linebackers. And I think the way Davis and Anzalone have played this year, I mean, how could you ask them to play any better? So I think it's just been a very solid, consistent defensive effort. But at the same time, you know, they're going up against the, the most formidable offense that they've faced mm-hmm. with uh, one of the league's top quarterbacks. I mean, I think it was preseason second team going in, Josh Dobbs, and, and Dobbs almost – single-handedly beat the Gators last year, so he's dangerous. And it's dangerous when you go into a place like Neyland Stadium, and for a lot of these players, it'll be their first time. For others, they've been through this drill, or as you were talking about with Appleby, they've been through other big game environments. But talk specifically about what makes Neyland Stadium such a unique challenge. Well, I I think it's uh, it's the size of the place. I mean, uh, when you you look at the acreage, if you will, of Neyland Stadium, and then the acreage of, say, uh, Thompson Bowling Arena, two of the biggest stadiums that this league has to offer. The basketball arena with twenty-one thousand, uh, but it's not a it's not a quaint twenty-one thousand. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that you could associate a hundred thousand people with, with quaintness, <laughs> but if you you didn't have to add too many more rows into the, the swamp to get an extra ten thousand, and if they were ever to do that. Florida would have 100,000 people, and it would be very quaint. Mm -hmm. That would be very quaint because there's not a lot of room on the sidelines in the swamp, whereas at Tennessee, it's just a massive structure. And then you get 100 to 105,000 people in there. It is is quite loud. They have a little bit of an overhang, a little bit of a semi-roof structure that helps some of that sound echo back and down below. I think that's the primary thing is just, it's so very, very big in there. And then, of course, obviously, Tennessee's had good football players throughout the years. Some legendary games there, some critical games. If you look at Florida's history in the last 20, 25 years, any moments from Knoxville that you really remember? Yeah, I, I remember quite a few. I, I, I'll start with the very first one I, I saw up there in 1990. Tennessee was pretty good. Florida was, was pretty good under Steve Spurrier that first year. It was not a division game. The league hadn't gone to divisions yet. They beat us 45-3, to hmm. and uh, we just got pummeled. We went up there two years later with a very young team. That was the 1992 team that started two true freshmen on the offensive line in Reggie Green and and Jason Odom at the tackles. Now, I point that out because last week we started two freshmen on the offensive line as well, one being a redshirt freshman, the other a true freshman, both on the right side. One was right guard, one was right tackle. But in this game in 92, we got a left tackle and a right tackle that are both young players. And we had a veteran quarterback in Shane Matthews, but you had to feel for a senior quarterback playing with two freshmen at at the tackle spots. So we went back in 1994. In, my, in the third trip that I had been there, and in the pregame, it rained like cats and dogs. And I remember the, the stadium, they were they were cheering, they were howling, because I thought this is going to be a repeat of 92. <laughs> Two years ago, Florida came in, it rained, and we just beat them, and it's raining like crazy. But then the rain stopped uh, somewhere early in the game, and they were a little bit undecided as to what they were going to do at quarterback. They had uh, a guy by the name of Todd Helton who had a great big league baseball career and a guy named Brandon Stewart at quarterback, and they kind of alternated them two. 
uh, those two, I should say. And they had, they had another, I'm stumbling around because they had another guy out there, quarterback, that they hadn't even played. Who was that yeah, guy? guy named, Who was his yeah, name? Yeah, a guy, yeah. I'm, I'm stammering and stuttering around, a guy <laughs> named Peyton Manning. He didn't even play. Now, it's true that Peyton Manning never beat Florida, but he had no part in that loss in 1994. The Gator defense was dominant that night. It was unbelievable. So unbelievable, in fact, the Gators shut out Tennessee in Neyland Stadium, 31 to nothing, and Tennessee has never suffered a shutout since back in 1994. Mm-hmm. We go up there the next time in 1996, and obviously we're, we're rolling along with Danny Werfel and company, and uh, we get off to a 35 to nothing lead in the first 20 minutes of the game. It's 10 minutes to go in the second quarter, and we're leading 35 to nothing. We recovered a midair fumble and took it into score on fourth and 10. Uh, Spurrier calls a pass play, and Danny throws one into the end zone from about midfield, and we get a long fourth down touchdown pass. Now, they rallied and came back. The final score is, I think, 35-29, but in no way were, were you thinking, uh-oh, this game's going to get away. We, mm-hmm. they, they weren't going to beat us, uh, but we didn't score after. We we didn't score uh, the last uh, 40 minutes of the game, but we did enough damage in the first 20. And then in 98, we go back up there, and this is the first game, I believe, I'm pretty sure in this, this is the first ever game that Florida played that went to overtime. The overtime rules had come to effect. First one in Florida history. This is first one in Florida history. Huh. And uh, we missed a field goal in overtime, and uh, they hit a field goal. And uh, moments later, the goalpost came down, and they probably had 40,000 people on the field celebrating. And it was, uh, it was a tough one because we had a very good team in 1998. That Tennessee uh, went on, I think, won the national title that mm-hmm. year. I think the Gators lost twice in 98. They lost to Tennessee in a game they should have won. And they lost to FSU in another game they should have won. It was a very good Florida team. Uh, so those are a couple of games. I think. Then we go back to, I think it was the year uh, in 2002, we had uh, a call that went our way on a, on a touchdown right at the goal line that we got a break on that one with Coach Zook was there. And, uh, and you know, and, and Urban was able to take care of Tennessee. That's what I said. We've had very good, very good fortune. Again, I, I recounted losses in 90 and 92, but then and in 98, a heartbreaking loss. But we've we've got so many big victories over there, and now of course uh, you know if we can get this game Saturday, it'll be 12 straight wins uh, over Tennessee in this series. So we've had a lot of good fortune in that big stadium. The streak is quite remarkable, 11 in a row, and as you said, trying to get 12 in a row. But even if you look bigger picture, Florida's won 19 of the last 23 games against Tennessee. It's almost reminiscent of Florida Georgia through the 90s and the mid 2000s. In your mind, does that lessen the state of the rivalry? To me, it doesn't lessen it at all because when I, as I'm doing this week and I'm I'm going through previous seasons notes, Florida versus Tennessee, and going back in the previous depth charts and then putting my depth chart together for this week and going back and picking out the stats and all those kinds of things. And to me, it's just it's every bit as big a rivalry. Not rivalry. Now I know a lot of people say it's not a rivalry. One team wins ten in a row. You hear that conventional thinking. I I never really subscribe to that because we're playing them every single year, mm-hmm. and we're going to have to beat them every year to probably get to the title or to the division championship game. That's the way it was in the '90s, and it hasn't been that way as of late because Tennessee's been floundering a little bit but still I mean when you look at Tennessee and when you look at Georgia it doesn't matter what the records are those are in my opinion those are rivalry games because you're going to play them every year and they're in the side the division so no matter the fact that the Gators have beaten them 11 in a row that doesn't take anything away from the, the bigness I guess if you will <laughs> of this game on Saturday I mean maybe maybe it's in Tennessee's heads a little bit maybe it isn't I I, I don't know and the thing about that is and Adam, these last two one-point wins, the turnovers have been even. 
in hmm. each of these two years. And that's significant because when you go back in the history of this series, going back to 1990, I think the team that has won the turnover battle or tied, in other words, have not, has not lost the turnover battle, the record is 20-4. and four. And, and that's, that's basically um, most of that's Florida wins. Sure. I mean, uh, so we have dominated because we haven't gone up there and turned it over. And when in the swamp, uh, we haven't turned it over. They've committed so many more turnovers against us. What's interesting about that is you look at Tennessee playing last week against Ohio U. And they're prone to put the ball on the ground. So if that happens, you cannot let them recover. We have got to go up there and get some takeaways in this game, whether it be some picks by a very good secondary we have or they fumble, we got to recover them. But it's been the history in the series. The team that d- avoids the turnovers has a tremendous winning record and almost attached at the hip to that is the team that runs the football mm-hmm. wins. And, and you look at the Gators' domination of the series, that tells you Florida has won the series largely because they've won the running battle. The last 11 years, the Gators have averaged uh, over 200 yards a game in rushing and uh, Tennessee has, has rushed for under 70 yards. And that's with a big rushing total they had last year. They outrushed the Gators last mm-hmm. year pretty significantly because they had 200-yard rushers last year. Jalen Hurd and Josh Dobbs both went over 100 yards rushing. So even with their domination in running against us last year, over the over this winning streak, this 11-game winning streak, it's like 210 to 70. It seems like Florida almost has nothing to lose, and the Gators and Jim McElwain have excelled as the underdog. That's a role that they've really relished. Yeah, I think credit Coach Mack and his staff for really getting these guys mentally ready. He pointed that out the other day, and looking back at last year's game, the thing he was most proud was that last year there wasn't a sense of panic, uh, even though we were getting dominated for about those 55 minutes, as I said, down two scores. They just continued to play. They just continued to play and play and play. And they went down there somewhat methodically, and they scored the touchdown. But it took a little bit of time. So now it's 27-21. There's only a couple minutes left. You know, you're only down a score, but you don't have a lot of time. And then lo and behold, we didn't get the ball back, and we made a play, 63-yard score. But he said, you know, we just didn't just didn't get down on ourselves. We just mm-hmm. kind of stayed, stayed right with it. And that's one of the things that uh, has been – it's been very good for Florida in this series that Tennessee has had more opportunities to panic, uh, you know, because they probably should have won the last two years. And there have been other games outside of the Florida series where Tennessee lost leads in the fourth sure. quarter, couldn't close out games. So when, when that's on your back, boy, that, that's, that's a big one to try and get rid of that. Mm-hmm. And that's what Tennessee's carrying, a little bit of that. Can they get over the hump? Uh, they've got this long losing streak in the series. They've also failed to close out games. You know, last week they only win by nine over Ohio U, and they got a touchdown the first two minutes of the game. They led 7 nothing early. You take that out, it's a 21-19 game for the last 58 minutes. Ohio U's playing right with them. Now, again, Tennessee has a lot of injuries, particularly on their defensive side. So they're going to play a lot of younger guys. And, uh, you know, hopefully that we can just maintain our poise and stay right in there because uh, all the pressure, in my opinion, all the pressure is on Tennessee. And that's going to do it for today's show. We're so happy to have you tuning into the official podcast, The Gators, and ask that you please rate us and give us a review on iTunes to help Gator Tales continue to grow. Make sure to watch the highly anticipated clash between Florida and Tennessee Saturday at 3.30 on CBS or listen live on the Gator IMG Sports Network. As a special treat, we have two episodes headed your way next week. 
First, it's a very special in-depth interview with Jeremy Foley coming out on Tuesday, in addition to our Vanderbilt preview that will drop as scheduled on Thursday. And to ensure you don't miss any of our exclusive content, subscribe to Gator Tales on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Until next time, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you on Rocky Top.